Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ooh, a spicy question. I <laughs> because love Because the writing is sort of everything, right? Like, you kind of can fix plot holes, but if the yeah. writing is So some there. readers love that, and some readers are like, but I wanted more of this. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a gamble. Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. My guest today is a writer of both fiction and non-fiction. She is an English lecturer at Oxford University and also teaches academic and creative writing and was elected a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2021. It's Sally Bailey. Hi, welcome to the show. Hello, very nice to be here. Thank you for asking me, Jamie. Oh, such a pleasure. Um, there's so much to talk about, um, so much to unpack, because uh, you've had such an interesting uh, writing career and sort of outside of that as well, kind of just just life. But let's start with um, your most recent publication. Uh, came out in July, uh, The Green Lady, the conclusion of a, of a sort of sequence of three books that's been going for a while now. Tell us a bit about it. Yes. We use the word conclusion. There's no concluding with me. I just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So just to answer that question, I've already started another book called Pond Life um, and it's circulating at the moment. I see it as a a kin, actually, a kind of kin, a relative to The Green Lady. So everything I write seems to be a sort of relative, um, a related member of a, a literary genealogy. That's how I see my books. Mm-hmm. I, I hand down the baton, you know, at school, the relay race. I always drop the baton in the relay race. But <laughs> when it comes to writing, I seem to be able to hold the baton. So I'm always passing something along. The Green Lady is the end of a sequence of three books, mm-hmm. which are very experimental, unabashedly literary, quite strange, strange in the sense of they're full of ghosts. And The Green Lady, in some sense, is a ghost story. I start to examine through the idea of the unconscious and my intuition, my ancestral past. Now, some of this is made up. In fact, a lot of it is made up. I would say it's a kind of fictional biography. Okay. Yes, that's how I would, that's probably the closest it is. Um, if you want to get hung up around terms and categories seems to be something we're obsessed with in the contemporary world. I like to break down categories, Jamie, and smash them to pieces and throw everything up into the air and see where it lands. Aha. Well, that's, I mean, that's great. I think the reason that we've all become so focused on categorization and genre is because of marketing, right? Yes. I think we can blame marketing for all always of that. blame marketing if in doubt <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so it's a, a sequence it's does it feel wrong to call it a trilogy no i think that's absolutely fine it's a definitely okay. a, it's a, a set of books that go one two three and I, what i do in the green lady is i scoop up some of the shards and fragments of the first book which is girl with dove and girl mm-hmm. with dove was really in many ways just purely an experiment. And people always say to me, do you plan? Do you write? Do you schematize? Do you map things out? No, I don't. I really, really don't. The way I learned to write was through my dreams. I write down my dreams. I write up my dreams, something that a lot of 
you know, well-known writers such as Martin Amos said you should never do. You should never write up your <laughs> dreams. Tosh, I say, Martin, uh-huh. Tosh. Um, God bless him. Um, he's a great writer, Martin Amos. But I do think you can... You can mine your dreams. Um, and there's a great tradition of literature of the unconscious, of course. And books like Alice in Wonderland have always been very, very important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, books that hover between the real and the the super real. You know, they tell us things about the real world, which are uncomfortable and difficult. And, and Gerwig's of runs back and forth between scraps and fragments, scraps, fragments and orts, as Virginia Woolf put it, of biography but then sews it onto the back of a set of literary texts, which I would say got me out of a, a pretty tricky situation as a child. So I, I create heroes, I create literary heroes. And the child in Girl with Dove, the first part, she believes that those literary characters are as real, if not more real than her own family members. I see. So much of what you just said is is like tied into like you said it's the it's the the dream versus the real, but then yes. also you're talking about these books which are fiction and also nonfiction. Yes, uh, and then the the second part of the sequence is no no boys play here. Yes, am I right in thinking that that's probably the most autobiographical of the three? Well, there's an essay at the end, so I come out at the end and I write. I write an essay in voice. It's still creative nonfiction, but mm-hmm. I felt I had to do that, Jamie, with No Boys Play Here because it's such a serious book. It's a much yeah. darker book than Girl with Dove, and it's tackling very serious themes that you do not dally with lightly. And although the book trades in lots of linguistic play and story play and improvisation, which is my method, jazz, if you like, I'm a kind of jazz well, my friend Dennis would say I'm a, I'm a jazz musician, which is very nice, <laughs> which is very nice coming from a boy. But um, but I, I had to write that piece at the end, partly because it's a very difficult book. It's using Shakespeare. You know, Shakespeare, we, we, we start to go, oh, Shakespeare. Learn about that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's a heavyweight. But mostly, Jamie, because it's about poverty and suicide and brokenness and broken men and the, the the inheritance of brokenness. The child narrates her protagonist in that story, inherits the brokenness of her male relatives over centuries, not just one generation, but over centuries. Yeah. So in a way, I had to come out and gather a few facts. And it's still written in a kind of, my, my friends say to me, it's like being in a seance with your book, Sally. So there is a kind of seance atmosphere, I think, even to that essay at the end. But I wanted there to be something that, let's be honest, lazy lazy journalists might read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. If they did all their homework, you know. Yeah. So, because I don't think you can, you can't pretend with something as, as serious as generational poverty, which leads to, you know, suicide and... Um, devastating levels of mental ill health and and suicide which is what i write about in no boys play here yeah so you because you a lot of your writing sort of borders on ethereal and this sort of otherworldly kind Mm. of like we've said and i guess you wanted you wanted to just ground it at the end and just be like these are this is serious and and we you know we're talking about it and and you should take this seriously that's great yeah indeed 
taking response, kind of really taking responsibility and kind yes. of owning the whole topic. That's right. That's right. And also setting up the character slyly, because I'm always doing something sly. Ah, okay. uh, there was a sly <laughs> setup going on with the character of Mary Neal, who is the suffragette heroine of the Green Lady or one of the heroines of the Green Lady. So she does appear in No Boys Play here, but I just wanted to make sure she'd landed in the reader's imagination as somebody mm. I was whose story I was going to open up in in the Green Lady. So just yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So kind of setting up for the next one as well. Yes. Yes. And you mentioned that these these books, these the, they stories, they are very experimental and like mm-hmm. largely in terms of the kind of the construction and the craft. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read on your website that you um, and we, you know, we 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 touched on it a bit at the start of this, but you you are fascinated by uh, the shifting relationships between genres. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I never. I don't think any creative act is ever stable. It asks you to be in your own being, unstable. You know, quite literally, you have to wobble about a bit. And I think of it like this. And forgive my metaphorical imagination. I'm afraid that's where I always end up going <laughs> is towards some strange metaphor. But I live on a boat, as you know, and much of my life is quite literally, physically, and materially a balancing act. So when I run my engine. Uh, my books fall onto the floor. (laughs) (laughs) They pop, they go, pop, crash, you know, pop, crash. And so I live all the time with these minor collisions with gravity, you know, and I'm I'm part of that. If I move from left to right to the boat, something alters on, on, in terms of the planes, in other words, the, the flatness of my boat, you know, we're going to the left or to the right to port and starboard, they say in boaty terms but yes and i and i would say that genre is like that i don't believe that that we ever are just writing for example when you say i'm writing a memoir well that's an act of memory and all act of memory is broken and interrupted and we obsessively revise it every single time we remember a scene so for example the scene that i write up in the green lady of my mother beautifying our very, very dingy front room, our threadbare carpet front room, all the furniture broken down, you know, filthy, dirty, all the rest of it. My Every single winter, my mother made this delightful woodland winter scene, she called it. And it's really a very mythic memory moment in my childhood imagination. And it's in my brother's imagination as well, because we've talked about it. But every time I think of that moment of creation, my mother's act of creation. I am revising that scene. I am adding characters to that little woodland cameo that she made or several cameos she made. It was a whole world. And I add and I take away and I see my mother's face and the lighting is altering and shifting because I believe that when you are writing up something from the past, your urge and your desire creatively, your unconscious urge is to reform it and to refashion it. So in some sense, that scene in The Green Lady, which sounds as though I am speaking directly from a biographical memory bank, is in fact a work of fiction, largely. I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's the the rose-tinted glasses, right? Yes. When you look back at something and it's, yes. it's, nev- it's it was never actually as good as you remember it or, or bad. Yes. Vice versa. Or you make it uh, better or you repair yeah. it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. 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 You can, you're, you're projecting your own agenda onto it as an older experienced person. And I, and I would say actually just to add to that and to, to further answer your question, I think 
for myself, the way my imagination seems to work, and maybe it's because I'm quite an anxious person. I think most creative people are quite anxious because they're just <laughs> holding all of this, um, all of these images in their mind. But uh-huh. I would say that my mind works like painting and film. So those are the two art forms I think have had an enormous influence on my writing life. My mother was a painter. She was also a seamstress. Mm-hmm. Um, and and those two crafts come together, I think, because there's something very, very hyper-visual about the seamstress's needle jumping around. You know, there's a kind of nervousness and, and agitation to it, which I identify with my own character, <laughs> personality, my jumpiness. Yeah. But my mother was also a painter and it was very hidden from us. That's what she had done for a, a small part of her young adult life. And the language of painting has now in recent years turned into the language of film. And I've worked with a wonderful filmmaker called Susie Hanna, and you'll see her work on my my website. We've bonded very closely over the relationship between poetry and film, and in particular, this idea of the moving image and of animation and the ways in which moving images are always urging themselves almost to alter and change and reform and refashion and and make themselves anew. So I think that this idea of the film reel, R-E-E-L, like a dance reel, is so fundamental to how I see genre. I just, I don't believe in this idea of non-fiction or creative non-fiction or you know, even the essay form, my favourite essayists are partly fiction writers. So people like Virginia Woolf, you know, she writes, her essays are a bit like short stories. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Yeah, because when you're someone like Virginia Woolf or, or um, Philip Pullman's kind of the same, he yes. writes a lot of essays. It's because whilst it is in theory academic, it's also like so much of their voice and their kind yes. of ideas are not outwardly just written on the page, but like projected into how they're phrasing things and things like that. Yes. Indeed, indeed. And in fact, just to give an example of that in my recent life, I so I teach writing a lot, as you know. And even when you're writing, for example, students at the moment are applying all over the place to go to university for next year, God help them. And, <laughs> and they have to present oftentimes some sort of personal essay and they get so worked up about this. Mm-hmm. So the way I teach them to write is through the spoken word. I say, because many of them are very, very verbally articulate and they come out with sentences that are very full, very replete, very rich, very nuanced. And then when it comes to writing, to writing, they go, oh, I am now writing, you know, and they go kind of robotic <laughs> and a bit kind of you know um r2d2 on me like what yeah. are you doing you know <laughs> just yeah. just hear it in your ear and speak it out and so sometimes we record ourselves and that's also fun but they say some wonderful things and it's just this it's this very strange disconnection between the spoken voice the spoken word and the written word and it wasn't always like that i think that with that there's an element of the like writing it down sort of formalizes it and they, yes. it needs to be like business and, and very yeah. strict and things like that. 
Yes, it's also the exam system. The exam system has a lot to answer for, though. The right answer to everything approach to learning we now have. Yeah, it's the yeah you, you, the when it's being marked, you're like looking for certain phrases and yes. like checking boxes for phrases over there, and it doesn't really make sense, especially when you're talking about English literature and things like that. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the dreaded marking schemes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fine for maths. But fine, other, anything other than maths. Maths. <laughs> yeah. it, absolutely but even with maths i think you should show your workings because there's something really yeah. interesting about having taken the wrong turn with a sum you know and and i try and it's interesting you should mention maths because i say that to my writing students i say show your workings, show your workings because sometimes you'll you'll have done something really interesting even if it was a bit erroneous when you write that you mm. might want to mine later on yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of the, the the like it's a mistake for now, but like maybe later double check and it might yes, not be a mistake. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Yes. I, and you mentioned so you mentioned fiction and nonfiction and how the the very kind of you think there's a very thin line between those two things. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to talk about you mm-hmm. know we've mentioned what the industry would ostensibly recognise as your fiction works, uh, <laughs> which would be the trilogy, but then you also have nonfiction, which would be. Um, the, the private life of the diary and home on the horizon, which are much more sort of like historical investigations and, and deep dives into various different art forms. <laughs> what is, is it like, do you, is it a very different process? Do you think doing that? Or like you've said, where you think they're actually quite similar, <laughs> do you actually not really differentiate that much when you're writing something like that? No, I don't, to be honest. And in fact, one of the loveliest compliments I had on Home on the Horizon, which was an academic trade book, which is a very Mm. difficult category to be in because they still want you to sound like, God forbid, an academic. (laughs) Um, And I definitely didn't want to sound like an academic. But one of the one of the bright boys who was reading it, actually, I think through a thesis, not my student, but somebody else's student, he said to me, just in passing, he said, I loved Home on the Horizon because it reads like a novel. And he said, I didn't think you could write like that, as in one wasn't allowed to. And I said, well, I have to tell a story. You need a critical narrative. I mean, everything is storytelling, really, when it comes down to passing along an idea and making connections between characters. And I do something really slightly odd in that book, I try to bring together Emily Dickinson and Bob Dylan. And the reason, the way in which I went about that was by finding a third, because I think most artists, particular painters, think through threes, particularly when you're thinking about perspective and composition. And the third there between Emily Dickinson and Bob Dylan was Edward Hopper. I've always adored his paintings because they represent to me daydream and reverie. And the deep inwardness of and privacy of somebody staring out into empty space, looking out towards a horizon, perhaps with hope, perhaps with dread, who knows? But for me, that summarized what an artistic voyage or journey, which is a courageous thing to do. I think any act of creation is is difficult. That those paintings summarize to me what it means to be an artist in the deepest sense, not just in the sense of being a painter, but in terms of having an inward horizon as well. Yeah. So actually that book, although it has research, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it has research, it's the um, the footnotes are all at the back they're kept out of the way and what mattered to me most of all Jamie was the voice and the engagement with the voice so 
I again, it was still run through my ear, and in the end, I think that's where I check myself. It's like, does what does that sound like? Can I hear the voice? Is the voice springing ahead? Yeah. And I had to make those two characters meet. And if you look at the structure of that book, it is structured around a series of spaces. So it takes the American home and it decomposes it. It goes from the half and it ends up on the horizon, but it but it goes via all the different parts of the American home, including the basement, the front porch, the backyard, the front lawn the kitchen, all of these kinds of spaces, which are very mythic in the American idea of what home is in uh-huh. the widest possible sense. Yeah. That's interesting. What I'm, what I think I'm getting here is like almost more important than what you're writing about or what the story is or what the kind of setting is to you is that the, the writing is authentically you always and that your voice is like ingrained within everything that's that's part of that. Yes, I think I think that's probably true. I think I'm use that awful word, but I think it's probably true, so I'm going to use that word. I think <laughs> I probably am as a teacher quite charismatic. And okay. I'm I'm wary of that word because I think charisma can be both good and bad. Mm-hmm. You know, it can so Satan in Paradise Lost is charismatic, but I'm not quite sure about his if we got a character reference, I'm not quite sure about that one. Um so <laughs> you know, there's there's um there's a lots of film stars on screen are very charismatic. So Clint Eastwood, famously mm-hmm. so, with just his eyes and his face, you know. Marlon Brando, famously so. Lots of men, unfortunately, I'm mentioning Ansei at the moment. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, that idea of charisma is very potent, very mysterious, and it relates to the Greek word for charm. And I do think there is something to be said for that idea. You do need to partly charm your readers. Mm-hmm. You do. You do. And I think that's why in Girl with Dove, I take on Jane Eyre, not just because Jane Eyre was, as as I believed as a child, my one of my best friends imaginatively. She was my <laughs> imaginary literary friend and kin and true yeah. sympathy, but because her voice is so extraordinary, Charlotte Bronte's creation of Jane Eyre's voice. It's, she sounds like a bossy head teacher as well. You know, she bosses me into her mode of being and seeing. And and I love that. I love being bossed about. Yeah. And when I speak to, I have quite a few literary agents come on the show and talk to them about kind of like what they look for in authors like that. And I, I think the number one thing that every literary agent is looking for when thinking about signing an author is what is their voice? Like how strong yes. is that? innate sort of like x factor which just comes through no matter what they write it's so intrinsically them yeah and i and i i think i've got that part right so what i struggle with and i think my voice is very strong maybe maybe for some people it's too strong you know it's like perfume (laughs) it's like well i'm not quite sure about that scent yeah But, but i think without that voice, Jamie, I would be lost. I quite literally would not know where I'm going because mm-hmm. my books are radically improvised. They are. They are radically improvised. And I love that tingling sense of layering and layering and layering another another episode because they're very episodic in a kind of picaresque sense of, you know, here's another chapter, here's another start to another adventure, you know, but all done through the voice. And if that voice were not really close to me you know like like the same as my skin if I were not able to touch that voice like a kind of epidermis or skin I I wouldn't know where the heck I was you know I would be lost 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I think it's so important. And, and the other thing is that, especially once it, with authors, when they get you, you, there's a lot of sort of, a lot of people feel a lot of pressure once they get signed, once they start kind of working with a publisher, you're working with an editor, you've got to make sure that everything you write, I think is still very much you and yes. that your voices doesn't get sort of drowned out by the other noise and, and everything that's going on or like y- your own sort of anxiety to, to be like, oh, but that, other author or that style is doing really well maybe I should write more correct. like that correct and that's one thing that I do I am very proud of I think it was Caroline uh, Sanderson Blesser in the bookseller said having summarized what the green lady was about again the similar themes of poverty and and kids who are disowned and foster mothers and foster children which is my ongoing theme but strange sorts of family life and and adoption of kin from from all sorts of places all sorts of cultural places but she caroline very very kindly and it you know it made me cry because I, I i think there's it is true she said sally bailey is um, a true and precious original now that sounds like i'm bragging but actually i think to be original is a very 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 hard thing to do and yeah. it, it costs you absolutely everything and that might also mean, Jamie, it costs you a place in the market sometimes, mm-hmm. right? You know, it probably does cost me. I, why did I not write a misery memoir about my very flamboyantly, you know, mad childhood? There, All the characters yeah. and ingredients are there, but I chose not to. Yeah. It's important to know what you're writing, like what you want your writing to achieve, like where you, yes. where you want it to end up. And if, you know, if you want to write something that's hyper commercial, yeah. then that's great. But yeah. like knowing early that you want to do that will set you, I think, in really good stead and then vice versa. If you want to write something which is really personal and creative mm-hmm. and like something that you are going to uniquely want to do, you might have to accept that that may never get published. Yes, indeed. 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 Absolutely right. Absolutely right. But I do also believe that if you are very committed to the act of writing as a daily practice and it's the same as almost breathing, then it will come tr- it will come true it will come true in the end it just will uh, you have to develop extraordinary reserves of patience and understanding and self understanding and you have to forgive so many people <laughs> along the way <laughs> for um, for saying you know something a bit idiotic about what you've written and they mean you know they they don't have time to read properly and i think my my books take a lot of time and patience and i and the highest compliment is that they need to be read three or four times well i think that's probably right yeah i mean and there's a lot of a lot of great advice in there as well for 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 people to to get through it and hopefully take into to their own sort of writing and and, yes. uh, and and adventures and that brings us to the final question of the of the episode which as always is Sally, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book would you like it to be? The Complete Works of Shakespeare, without a doubt. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because I know I've misread a lot of Shakespeare willfully. Mm willfully because that's my nature um and i as i get older perhaps i'll calm down a bit and and listen a bit more to some of those extraordinary story conceits that he unfolds because we read jamie where we are in our life a lot as well right Mm -hmm. so i i need to reread shakespeare over and over again to um to to have a fondness for characters i didn't necessarily have a fondness for when i was younger yes i totally understand that Mm -hmm. reading a book at if you've read a book when you were sort of younger and then you read it 10 years later you will you'll get such a different um 
interaction and experience from that book just because of what where you are and like that book will say yes. a different thing to you i think at that point that's so true and i yeah. mean shakespeare's shakespeare's great I, I always liked shakespeare i was it was drilled into me from a young age by my mother um <laughs> and and I'm, I'm happy for it because i i was never that oh. person at school who was like groaned when they were like oh we're studying shakespeare again i always thought oh great the shakespeare's fantastic <laughs> i love your mother for that i love well, your mother for that, that. <laughs> god bless her what a, what is what a heroine Yes, what a heroine indeed. Um, well, thank you so much, Sally, for coming on the podcast and um, telling us all about your your writing and, and, and all the kind of stuff that goes into it. It's been really, really fascinating chatting with you. It's been awesome. Thank you very much for listening to me, Jamie. Thank you. And for anyone listening, if you want to keep up with what Sally is doing, you can follow her on Twitter at Sally Bailey one on Instagram at Bailey Sally. Uh, and you can also find her on Facebook at Sally Bailey writer to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast. Follow along on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. You can support the show on Patreon. And for more bookish chat, check out my other podcast, the chosen ones and other tropes. Thanks again to Sally. And thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.